The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is New York Times reporter Michael Moss. Michael Moss was the recipient of the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting for his investigation into the dangers of contaminated meat and the surprising and troubling holes in the nation's system to keep our food safe. He was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 for his reporting on the lack of protective armor for soldiers in Iraq and in 1999 for a team effort on Wall Street's emerging influence in the nursing home industry. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his new book, the number one New York Times bestseller, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Welcome to Health Watch, Michael Moss. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So so you start out Salt, Sugar, Fat with a meeting in 1999, 11 men, the heads of America's largest food companies from Pillsbury and Kraft and Nabisco to Coca-Cola. Can, can you tell us why you started with that meeting and, and, and the significance of it? Yeah, I came across this meeting early on in my reporting um, um, through uh, gaining access to a trove of internal documents that put me at the table of the largest food companies as they were planning, plotting, formulating their way to, to creating new products, and also dealing with the growing concern about the health issues in their products. And this meeting was just extraordinary. It was early 1999. These CEOs who rarely get together for anything got together in private to talk about none other than the emerging obesity crisis. And, and the most amazing thing about it is that, you know, getting up in front of them was was nobody but one of their own, a senior executive at Kraft who was armed with 114 slides, and he laid at their feet responsibility for not only the obesity crisis, but for diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. He even started linking their foods to several cancers. And he said to them, look, even if you don't acknowledge responsibility, the lawyers who went after big tobacco are going to come after you. And he pleaded with them to collectively start doing the right thing by consumers. And then what happened with his plea? Uh, we have one company, Crafts, um, standing out and, and making this this suggestion that they, they change course. Um, yeah, from his perspective, the meeting was an utter failure because he knew that he needed to get them to act collectively um, because of the fierce competition among them and the, and the fierce pressure from Wall Street to produce profits. And so what we've seen is on a couple of occasions, some of the companies individually um, have tried to come up with an anti-obesity initiative, take some, take some of the steps he was suggesting back then, only to sort of get beaten back by Wall Street. And indeed, his own company, he was able to convince them to, to adopt you know, several remarkable things. One, they cut back on their marketing to kids, the most sugary products. Two, they reconfigured the labeling, uh, disclosures on their labels to be more forthright with consumers about serving size they decided, especially in those snack packs that have more than one serving, 
their own data showed that so many people eat the whole bag, and yet the calories would be listed only per tiny serving. They started putting the entire calories of the entire bag on the label, so you could see that, see that without doing the math. And then kind of most incredibly, they turned to their scientists and said, hey, you know, you will no longer be allowed to use an unlimited amount of salt, sugar, and fat in formulating allure in your products. We're going to cap that. And, you know, it worked to some extent, and it worked. It didn't work to others, and mostly Kraft, you know, under, came under intense competition from other companies, and, and, and that, was, that, that remains a lesson learned in going forward here. And these companies can't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't view them as being evil empires that intentionally set out to hook us um, or make us, or, or rather, who intentionally set out to make us obese or otherwise ill. The problem sort of lies in their collective zeal to do what companies do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. And when you talk about this pressure from Wall Street and the pressure to make more profit for your shareholders, Mm -hmm. that's that's really what is at the heart of this combination of these three ingredients, salt, sugar, and fat, and, and the research that's gone into by food scientists to to find the way to essentially hook us to these products. Yeah, they refer to it as, you know, engineering, sort of the invention of new products. And, And I was really, really struck by the precise genius that goes into creating that. I spent time with a legend in the industry, Howard Moskowitz, who walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper. And to get at the most perfect product that was guaranteed to be a hit. He started with 61 formulations of sweetness, each one slightly different than the other, submitted those to 3,000 consumer taste tests, and then took the data, threw it in his computer, did his high math regression analysis thing to come up with the optimum amount. As he explains to me, our liking for sugar is an infinite. You can chart it out on a bell curve, and at a certain point, um, if you keep adding sugar to a product, you'll like it less. And at the top of the bell curve is what he helped coin the internal industry name for this. is called the bliss point. And from a public health standpoint, one of the big issues is that, you know, companies are creating bliss points no longer just for soda and ice cream and desserts, but there are now bliss point created products all around the supermarket as breads, pasta sauces, yogurts suddenly began having lots and lots of sugar in them. And and you talk about sugar, the addition of sugar as being a way the companies are exploiting the biology of children specifically. Can you can you talk a little bit yeah, about there's that? A, those are the words actually of a scientist at a fabulous research center in Philadelphia called the Monell Center, which does take funding from the food industry, but its its scientists are incredibly independent. And she explained to me that children especially are hardwired for sugar. Every one of their 10,000 taste buds is just there waiting for sweetness to hit the mouth and then send you know, signals to the pleasure center of the brain, which basically then tells them, hey, calories, great, you're growing, you know, go for it, eat more. So sugar is especially, is an especially sort of high enticement allure to kids, as anybody with children sort of knows, um, um, more than even sort of fat and, and, and salt. 
And, and do you think that's uh, mostly biology, or do you think part of that is culture? Like, I wonder if you were, for instance, if you were to look at Inuit children who get almost no carbohydrates, would they be really yeah, into the sugar? the cause and effect is really difficult for people to, to map. The same scientist at Monell actually thinks that, um, you know, the, the kids taste for food begin to be shaped when they're still in the womb and mothers who you know are eating fresh broccoli or or more apt to have kids who who won't be turned off by by broccoli and or sort of by bitter taste so yes you know i i think it's probably i think it's probably both i think it's innate but then again it's sort of the the shaping of the of kids palates is is much is, is is much much of that can be laid on the food industry, and again, in part for making so many foods around the grocery store sweet, so that kids are no longer open to other tastes like bitter or sour as as perhaps they used to be. Well, it's interesting that you bring up these other flavors because it was very fascinating to read your section on salt. Mm. Not only that. Um, Three out of four children's products have too much salt in them, mm. but also that salt is really something that the industry is more hooked on yeah. than they're trying to hook us on because of, of the lack of use of other flavors, and they can just mask everything by using too much salt. Yeah, that was so stunning to, to, to me to sort of get to that reporting for the, for the last section of the book. Um, and, and starting with people, what I was surprised to learn is that we are not born liking salt as we are fats and sugar. Our liking for salt comes at about six months of age, and recent research, again by the Monell Center, indicates that the processed food industry is hugely influential over our liking of salt. Kids who are exposed to processed foods, which are inherently salty, are, are much more likely to be, you know, licking the salt shaker with cravings of salt by the time they're in preschool. And I can attest to that. My, my oldest, now 13-year-old, I caught him doing that back in preschool at a pizza parlor, much to, much to my chagrin. Um, and the other interesting thing about salt, too, is that anybody who's been on a low-sodium diet under doctor's orders knows that after about six weeks, they're taste for salt has, has been lowered so much that it actually becomes hard to shop in the grocery store for anything that's not like overwhelmingly salty. So we're, we're slow coming to salt and we're easy to get off it. But yes, the industry is intractably hooked on salt because it's, it's a miracle ingredient in so many different ways. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to New York Times reporter Michael Moss about his new book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. So, Michael, uh, in your fat section, you contrast it to sugar in the sense that unlike sugar, there really isn't a bliss point for fat. Um, the industry can hide a lot of fat endlessly into our food um, in ways that we might not initially perceive. In some ways, fat is even more powerful than sugar in that sense. Some scientists call it the invisible fat, especially those fats that are deemed to be problematic in large quantities, saturated fats. They tend to be the hard, solid fats that you find in meat and cheese, as opposed to the unsaturated fats, which are more apt to be found in liquids. When a fat's in the solid form, research shows that the brain is less apt to detect it. And what's happened over the years is, is just sort of an, an amazing story, um, especially with cheese. Um, the government, federal government, has incentivized the dairy industry to make so much cheese 
that it began piling up, and then Washington turned to the dairy industry and set up a scheme whereby it's now able to raise tens of millions of dollars every year to market cheese to get us to eat more. And this is cheese that's eaten not just for itself, like on a sandwich by itself or, or as an hors d'oeuvre before meal, but cheese that's being sold as an, and used as an additive in food. So now when you go to the dairy aisle, it's bulging with bags of cheese that are shredded, cubed, diced, sliced, stringed, and tubbed, all aimed at getting you to use that in your own home cooking as an ingredient to increase the allure. But then you walk through the grocery store, and so many products now have cheese in there, again, for the outed allure. The industry calls this the mouthfeel. Um, cheese is not one of the five basic tastes that Aristotle um, pointed out years and years ago. It's, it's a feeling. It's the warm, gooey sensation of biting into his toasted cheese sandwich. And the companies know that added cheese means added allure, and we're more apt to buy and like and eat more of a product. How, how do you reconcile, Michael, the idea that, uh, at least in nutritional science, there's, there's been this idea that the fat in the food is what satiates us and gives, a, gives us that uh, feeling of fullness at the end of a meal, yet the fat in these products doesn't have a bliss point. So how, yeah, how do you work, weigh that? It can, yeah, it can work both ways. It's really, really interesting because um, you're right. If there is a bliss point for fat, it's sort of, you know, it's up in like the heavy creams. And I, I think perhaps that, I mean, biologically, that may go back to the fact that, fact that maybe originally we were eating more fats in oils, um, per, perhaps. Um, I'm, on, I'm on shaky ground there. But I think you have kind of two things going on. Yes, fat can act as a, a huge kind of satiety factor. I'm thinking of nuts, for example. Walter Willett, the nutrition czar at Harvard, a chief at Harvard, is is huge on nuts of having, of having sort of a magical power to fill you up. They do have a lot of calories. Fat has twice as much calories as as um, as, as sugar, for example. But but I think the key is that you need to be paying attention to it. And some of this comes back to the huge issue here with processed foods, which is that mindless eating is a big factor here. And starting in the early 80s, just as obesity was starting to climb, it became almost overnight socially acceptable to eat anything, anywhere, anytime. And that led to people walking down the street, eating and drinking and going into business meetings. And I think it's sort of that hand-to-mouth eating, cutting the brain out of the equation that, that really plays into the processed food industry. So no matter whether it's fatty or highly sugary food, if you're not engaging the brain, if you're fooling it, then you're not going to trip those natural breaks that say, okay, enough already, uh, you know, slow down. So, so you're, when you mentioned earlier, uh, Michael, about the campaign for us to eat more cheese, yeah. that was a response to um, some health pressures for the industry to make more low-fat products, and they ended up with a lot of cheese that they didn't know what to do with. So what I'm wondering is, is this all sort of a corporate shell game in a sense that when there's a pressure for less salt, they just add more sugar. When there's a pressure for less sugar, they just add more fat, and then just yeah, goes around in yeah, a circle. Yeah, no, the, the cheese story is even more disturbing than that because what was happening originally is that we were drinking less whole milk as a way of reducing saturated fat and calories in our diet. We were demanding skim milk. The industry was left with a surplus of whole milk 
and milk fat extracted from that whole milk to make the skim milk. And rather than just kind of shrink or, yeah, shrink, the industry kept making so much milk, and they turned that into butter, ice cream, and then increasingly cheese. And I think you do see this over the years. In the 80s especially, there were consumer concerns about sugar, and you saw, you saw companies coming up with low-sugar products that were just as loaded with fat as they used to be, if not more, and salt. And then in the 90s, fat became an issue, and you would see low-fat yogurts, for example, with as much sugar in them as ice cream. And then these days, salt is one of the bigger concerns, and you see a big salt reduction effort going on in the U.K. right now, but obesity is starting to climb because these less salty snack foods are still loaded with, salt, with sugar and fat. And so, yeah, these, the industry tends to react to consumer concern by dialing down on one of, these, one of these ingredients that I call the Holy Trinity while maintaining or even increasing the others. So if the net health benefit or, or health detriment of a specific food stays relatively the same because they're just moving around these ingredients, what are some of the obstacles to really making substantial change to these companies, meaningful yeah, I think change to these companies? I think, we've, yeah, I think we've named a few of them. It's, you know, it's federal regulators who are very timid and largely powerless uh, to regulate the industries that they're supposed to be regulating on behalf of consumers. It's Wall Street, which starting in the 80s became enamored by tech stocks and began demanding bigger profits from blue ship companies, including the food companies. Um, and to some extent, it's sort of us. And one thing I'm hoping that this book is, besides a wake-up call to the industry, is, is something that can be empowering to us as shoppers. Because when you, when you realize, you know, by, by, and it was certainly true for me in the research I did for the book, when you see everything that the food industry is doing, throwing at you the moment you walk into a grocery store, it actually becomes empowering. And look, ultimately, we're the ones who decide what to eat, how much to buy. And I think that can be a, you know, a position of power if consumers can get louder about their growing concerns about what we're putting into our bodies. So you mentioned the um, the Wall Street pressure and and the lack of regulation from from government, but isn't it more than a timidness from the government? Isn't it actually that the government is promoting these foods? Yeah, and you know, within the Department of Agriculture, there is a huge conflict of interest. And again, I was able to see that with their. Um, product promotion programs for both cheese and meat. Um, one of the most visible signs of the sort of conflicting missions that the Department of Agriculture is just within the buildings themselves. The, the Ag Department is right on the mall in Washington, near the Washington Monument. Um, and it's a huge building. It used to be the biggest in the United States before the Pentagon was built miles and miles of corridors and thousands of offices, but to find the part of the Department of Agriculture that is charged with protecting and advising consumers on better nutrition health, you have to get on the metro, cross the river into Virginia, then get on a bus and then walk and then go up to the 10th floor of some obscure office building to find the little unit that's charged with protecting consumers, and their budget is just a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall U.S. Department of Agriculture's budget. So, yes, that's a, that's, that's a major part of the situation here is, is a conflict of interest 
with the ag industry and the restaurant and food manufacturers getting the lion's share of the tax monies um, as either subsidies or, well, largely subsidies and, and government promotion. So, so when we look at all that's stacked against the individual, the, 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 on the one hand, the government being too timid but also promoting these food products by making them cheaper through subsidies, the pressures of Wall Street, the, mm-hmm. the, the nation's most sophisticated food scientists manipulating our, our biological yearnings, is it really fair to say that the, we have the power in terms of making choices when you also say you add in – Class ben- class issues uh, where some some neighborhoods don't even have grocery stores; they have convenience stores with just junk food in them. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's so it's so difficult. I spent time in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country, where you know they don't have a food desert; they have a food swamp where they're reliant on corner stores that you know are the equivalent of of what used to be the crack houses in the neighborhood, but in this case, they're selling giant sodas and snack cakes and salty chips all up front to kids who come running in there before school and parents are trying to to push back um look the you know the playing field isn't isn't level and and i empathize with people like mayor bloomberg of new york city who's trying to just put some simple caps on the hugest sized sodas getting accused of being a nanny. But but one of the things to think about in that situation is a number, and it's $300 billion. That's the estimate for how much the obesity crisis is costing us each year in added medical expenses and, and lost productivity. And the last time I heard a number like that, and it wasn't nearly as large, was when the states sued big tobacco for the expenses they were undergoing because of of health problems from nicotine. So, I mean, ultimately, I think it does go back on, on the consumer. And we can, if you have time, we can talk a little bit about some simple things you can do as a shopper to fight back and get in and out of the grocery store with your health intact. But again, I think it, I think that change is going to have to come from consumers getting louder about their concerns and, and demands. Do you, do you feel like there's any hope in terms of pressuring around a change in the subsidy situation? So instead of subsidizing corn, we're subsidizing fruits and vegetables? Yeah, it's going to be tough. But I think, I think that could be one way to go. If you're worried about the nanny accusation, instead of trying to tax sugary and fatty foods, which or limit the kind of foods people can buy with food stamps, for example, which seems to me can you know will only widen the gap between the rich and the poor in this in this country and being a regressive tax. The other approach is to increase or rather you know make exist subsidies for fruits and vegetables because now when you walk in the grocery store, everything is going towards the highly processed foods. And so I know, you know, I happen to know that people in the White House are looking at ways that they can possibly shift and encourage fruit and vegetable growers to, um, to, to, to dip into subsidies so that they can sell fruits and vegetables for, for less money than they are now. And it's certainly going to be difficult. Well, it's telling that in, in salt, sugar, fat, that most of the CEOs of this company don't eat their own food. And, and I would love for you to talk about that phenomenon, which seems like a class issue also. But all, and then um, maybe we can end with you giving some tips for individual shoppers, sure. too. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a class issue. I spent time with the inventor of the Lunchables, the 
healthy TV dinner type tray that was eventually marketed to kids, and it's approaching a billion dollars in sales now. Um, he explained to me that, look, typically executives of food companies, marketing or formulators, are, you know, are of a class where their spouses, don't, you know, don't often work outside the home or they have a certain level of nutritional awareness that they will not eat their own products so that his daughter um, has never served a Lunchable to her three children. They kind of know that Grandpa invented the Lunchables, but she spends a lot of her time um, making their lunches and paying more attention to the health issues, um, being concerned about the health profile of the Lunchables, even though Kraft recently has really begun dialing back on some of the nutritional loads. Um, you so, also mentioned um, Jeffrey what, Dunn, the uh, rising star in Coca-Cola. Uh, so the rising star of Coca-Cola, he was one of their fiercest warriors uh, for 20 years, um, was the heir apparent to the whole company, became the president for North America, had a change of heart in the early 2000s. I caught up with him recently. He's now doing what he calls his karmic debt. He's trying to sell fresh baby carrots using some of the marketing playbook from the junk food industry to try to make them more interesting, which I think is just totally fascinating. I spent time with the former chief scientist of Frito-Lay. We were going over all these internal documents that he had at his dining table, and we broke for lunch, and he came back with, you know, I thought he was going to bring back some Frito pies and Cheetos on the side, and he comes back with two bowls of plain-cooked oatmeal with raw asparagus on the side, and I go, you know, I was startled, but he's, he must be doing something right, because he's in his 70s now, and that morning he did his usual hour-long run up this hill behind his house. So, you know, one after another of these scientists and food and food marketing executives impressed upon me that they know so much about their own products, they, 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 they try not to touch them. So give us a, a tip or two before, before we leave today of, of how we can make better choices when we go into the, the marketing yeah. frenzy of the grocery store. Yeah. A couple things. One, they're trying to do everything they can to make you make a spontaneous decision. That's why you often see soda coolers at the checkout counter. So this is an old, you know, an old saying, but make a list and stick to it. Two, work the outer edges of the store. That's where the fresh fruits and vegetables are and the, and the less processed meats and dairy if you eat meat. And then when you're in the middle of the store where the most highly processed foods typically are, be careful of the aisle sections at eye level in the middle of the aisle. They've done research putting devices on people's heads that measure eye movements, and they know that when you approach the aisle, your eyes go right to the, right to the eye level center, and so that's where you'll see the most sweet, uh, fattest products. If you're in the cereal aisle, look low, look high for plain oatmeal and other less sugary items. And, you, and I, I know you also mentioned in the book, which I thought was interesting, uh, about the lack of home economics in school. Oh, my gosh, yes. Long-term, you know, education is the solution. Um, we stop teaching both girls and boys um, how to shop and how to eat back in the 80s. The internet, even before that, the industry took over the business of home economics, teaching people how to shop for processed foods. I found that engaging my own kids who are 8 and 13, just a little bit of nutrition, they get it. 
kids are not dumb. They don't want to be overweight or otherwise ill. And I find that when we engage them in the process, they become part of the hunt in the grocery store, and they're more apt then to like those lower sugar, lower fat products. I, I remember in the 80s myself in junior high school um, learning how to cook and sew and other things in home economics, and, and it's, it's something totally foreign today in, in most uh, public schools, I think. Yeah, and cooking itself was, you know, deemed, you know, became such a sort of a gender-specific thing that for men especially, cooking was just totally discouraged. And I've been spending time with Michael Pollan lately. There's a great new book coming out called Cooked, and he makes this point that, I mean, why was, I mean, why should that be? Why should men not be into and be able to cook sort of more than on the barbecue grill? And I, I really encourage your listeners to, to look for his book as well. Do you have a, a website, Michael? That I do. It's michaelmossbooks.com. Great. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you. It's been fun. We are talking today with New York Times reporter Michael Moss about his new book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. And, and he just mentioned Michael Pollan's new book, Cooked, who we will be speaking to in May, along with Mary Roach and Temple Grandin in May. So definitely keep staying tuned to Health Watch. Mm-hmm.